Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. That was so mean. Well, it's true. That was so mean. Really? Like I speak it every day, but diarrhea. But you have spoken much more eloquent French than what you just spoke. (laughs) Well, I like to think of you as somebody who can speak more eloquently in his French than what you just gave me. (laughs) All I'm saying is that was that was really hurtful. Hey, uh, how are you? Are you good? Fantastic. Oh, now you're just going to show off all night. We oui. <laughs> Put it to bed. Put it to bed. Can I tell you the story of today? The story of today. Tell me I was bar. listening to, uh, I, was, <laughs> I was listening to with my kids, you know, because yeah, my wife's been out of town. This is one of her travel weeks, you know, so she's out in the hinterlands and, um, uh, so I'm with my kids. And when the kids, when you're home alone with the kids, you know what it's like. You do oh, things. Goodness. There are things you do to make the time happen. and Because <laughs> you think that it's smart to, to you know, buy your kids off when, when one spouse is out of town. Because you think, gosh, if I buy my kids off with, like, you know, go out to dinner, you know, let them watch an extra show or something like that, then maybe they'll be nice. But the problem is kids don't. Kid, work kids don't don't see that as a quid pro quo at all. They don't understand that they're being bribed. They have, right. they don't truck in bribery and deceit yet. That's not the point of my story at all. So anyway, we're I was on my way to a bribe. Their favorite thing every Thursday when my wife's out. This is the big night she comes home. She gets home at midnight, and so we were on our way to our um, to our because you know we're still in mourning that she's been gone, and so we we as a salve to our 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 poor. Um, selves we go we take each other to sushi it's one of our favorite little things so we go out to sushi. we're on our way to sushi and what's on uh but marketplace you know the show uh npr nope marketplace. oh yeah yeah right you know, NPR, with, yeah. with kai rizdal okay uh, i don't remember the names but sure no no no. it's it's kai rizdal gotcha don't forget kai rizdal. <laughs> nobody <laughs> puts kai rizdal in the corner um and so <laughs> somebody has written in. I we didn't catch the whole story, but somebody's written in about Levi's. You know Levi's. You've heard of this company. I, I believe they I make have. the they truck in denim. Yes. And they make the jeans. And apparently they use a lot of water in the production of these jeans. I don't know nothing from production of jeans. I make no comments about actual production of jeans. But what I do know is they are trying to reduce water, apparently. And one way this writer uh, writes in says, you know why you can, you can really save water if we just recondition everyone to know that you just you don't ever have to actually wash your jeans. What? That's what the letter says. Like I make 
make no assertions as to the veracity of this claim. But their suggestion was, this writer, that instead of washing your jeans, you should take your jeans and put them in the freezer. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. Are you with me so far? <laughs> I, I am. Because what what do you you know what do you do with your uh, you know when you put things in the freezer? It freezes them apparently, according to said writer. It will uh, freezing and then it will freeze and then kill the bacteria, and apparently the stink. Right. What about what about reshaping? I, I, nothing was said about reshaping, nor was anything said about just plain dirt that is visible on the jeans. I imagine dirt will begin to appear uh, on the jeans if you never actually submerge them underwater. Right, right. I would so, imagine so. I would imagine so. So nobody says anything in the cars we're driving to sushi. We get to sushi, and we kind of are doing our thing. And then we get home. Hours go by. We do a little bedtime story, you know, reading a little bit. Everybody goes to bed, and I'm cleaning up the house. And, you know, hours and hours go by. I totally forgotten about this. Uh, and then I, I, walk, uh, I walk out to our outside freezer, and I open the door. And my almost 12-year-old daughter has put... <laughs> <laughs> her jeans turned inside out, hanging like a curtain in front of our our storage of meats <laughs> to freeze them <laughs> overnight. Wow. You know, they're like, they're, they become sentient beings at the weirdest times. <laughs> All right, I can't the... get her to listen to me for anything. Take a shower, brush your teeth, come down for breakfast. Nothing, not a word sinks into her head. But Kai Rizdahl on Marketplace on NPR will actually get her to put her jeans in a freezer. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's pretty uh, funny. I find that fairly amusing. The things that stick, man. I'm telling you. Yeah. Kai Rizdal, I want him to come to my house and just order people around because apparently he's the only guy who can make it happen. That's I, that's true. That's true. Yeah. That is funny. You have any? You have any stories? I don't have any stories. Okay, that's all right. I know. Shall we tell the people where we're from? Where are we from? Thanks for joining us. It's the next reel. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, uh, you know this is the next reel. This is a show where Andy and I we come on every week and we spoil movies and are thrilled and honored to do it for you. Uh, you can find us at thenextreel.com. You can read the blog stylings of the goodly, kindly, once and future king Steve Sarmento. Uh, you can catch up with all of our past shows as well as our uh, monthly special edition. Very special episodes, the film board. Mm-hmm. How'd you feel about the film board this week? We did uh, we did the big uh, Godzilla hashtag Godzilla twenty fourteen. I think it was fun. It was a, a a good time, good chat. It was a good chat. That Tommy handsome. Well, he's, you can't you can't take him anywhere. <laughs> he's a yeah, he's a wild one. <laughs> take him out in public, he'll fall over stuff. Faster, and you can say Kai Rizdal. Kai Rizdal, that's right. <laughs> hey, uh, so yeah, join us on the social platforms of choice: Facebook, Twitter. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on. Uh, you can even find us on Google Plus. All seven of you. 
can find us there. We'd love to. I think it's uh, eight now. Oh, it's eight now. Excellent. And most importantly, you can find us with uh, uh, on Instagram with the weekly outsmarted hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. Stephen Smart versus the people. How do you do this week? That's right. You know, he had a good run this week. I think week. it was a good run. He made it uh, pretty much almost right to the end, uh, and the film was Rocky. And, you know, somebody, uh, I commented, uh, surprisingly few guesses, and uh, somebody wrote back, surprisingly obscure images. And But, you know, you got to throw in obscure images, especially in the beginning. Otherwise, people get it right away, as we've learned in the past. That <laughs> we, so, have learned, we have learned that. Yes, yes, we definitely have the hard way, <laughs> some would say. Uh, but yeah, and then finally, uh, it was uh, Ben Lott, B. Lott 2319, who managed to figure it out, seeing the picture of Rocky's dog. He uh, guessed correctly, and uh, so he is now entered to win our pony prize. Oh, that's good. Yes, indeed. Good. Just under the wire with Ben Lott. That's, Friend you know, of the show. It's, a, it's one of those uh, movies that a lot of people have seen, and a lot of people love it, have seen it a lot of times. So I will, you know, just give kudos to, to old Smarty Pants Stephen for coming <laughs> up with some really great images that really did not tell you what the movie was at all. <laughs> right? That is that is really good. That is the sign uh, of, like, you know, that's just the sign of, of uh, real expertise. Yes, either uh, expertise or mad genius. Mad genius. <laughs> that was very exciting to see. It Great was. images from that film. It was so fun. Absolutely. Hey, I'm glad you uh, glad you brought up uh, old Ben Lott. Yes. Can you tell me why? Why do you have a reason to? <laughs> <laughs> I was I trying know. to throw it back to you. Oh, okay. I <laughs> I got all suspicious all of a sudden. Why does he owe you money? <laughs> Hey, uh, you know, I feel like he has actually, he's done what you and I failed to do. He has christened his weekly review of our reviews, The Blot Score. What do you think about that? (laughs) I think that's fantastic. That made me so happy. So we are, in fact, keeping The Blot Score for 1981 films. Yes. (laughs) And and it looks like, uh, hey, we got a tie. Although, he says, and I think this may be a great disservice to the film we did last week, uh, my dinner with Andre, that he actually had to listen to it like a podcast. (laughs) Hey, man, whatever it takes. (laughs) Yes, at least you got the the conversation. That's right. That's right. So uh, it's he 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 calls it a tie. We're at we're at a full draw on uh, on the blot score for 1981 films. Uh, Definitely was not keen on Escape from New York. Uh, He was thrilled to be introduced to Das Boot, Uh, and uh, now he uh, he calls it a draw on my dinner with Andre. Yeah, a loss (laughs) visually uninspiring. uh, I think may go without saying. (laughs) <laughs> Even by the filmmakers themselves. <laughs> There's only so many shots you can do. That's a, right. That's a, right. Two-person conversation. The cinematography just doesn't even show up. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's funny. Uh, it, it's, uh, I, I, I have to say, I actually look forward to these uh, 
to the comments that come in from Ben now. It's the thing I look forward to. I try to hurry to post my post the show <laughs> so we can give Ben something to write about. That's awesome. And you know, he actually uh, left a comment for us over on iTunes as well. Oh, did he? Along with I, see, I didn't even see that. Yeah. Oh. Extremely enjoyable movie discussions. Andy and Pete have a great style of banter that just makes me feel at home. They are guys you want to hang out with and chat about movies. Of course, they also have a lot of knowledge to share and some strong opinions. That's probably... Well, I guess that's your fault. Strong no, that's, your, that's all you. <laughs> that's all me. <laughs> I've now caught up on listening to every episode, and I can attest that they just keep getting better. Oh, that's the nicest thing you could say. (laughs) I was going to say, probably because we had no idea what we were doing when we started. (laughs) (laughs) Adding the flick chart rankings is a great addition to each episode. They even have a list posted of which movies they will review so you can watch along with them, which makes the discussion that much more interesting. This is easily my favorite movie podcast. Pick a couple movies you like in their episode list and try it. You won't regret it. Oh, man, that's a slam dunk. That is. Isn't that nice? Thank you, Ben Lott. Absolutely. Uh, for listening, as always. And yes, we you can actually jump over to uh, uh, the next real watch list. There's a button, uh, the letterboxed TNR watch list, right on the sidebar of the site. And you can jump right over there and, and see what we are going to talk about. Right now we have just the, the remaining films uh, that we'll be talking about in uh, 2014. Um, Most of them. Most of them. There are some that we are not, uh, that are not posted. Uh, Our guilty pleasures. Guilty pleasures, which we are surprising each other. Shortly, mm-hmm. that'll be right after this series, actually, right after 1981. Yeah, yeah, we got a couple more movies in 1981, and then we're going to do our guilty pleasures. And then uh, we also have just started a list uh, on a, a request. I think this actually may have been Ben's request. I think it was. It's been all over us. It was this an week. active week. I know. Uh, which was we we had sorely forgotten that we hadn't been posting because the way we do the film board posts, we we've forgotten that we actually don't post those until um, uh, we don't come up with the movies we're going to talk about until the week we're recording the prior show. So uh, as soon as we're finished recording each film board episode, we decide as a team, what are we going to talk about next month? Well, letterbox is all messed up. You can't reorder your watch list. So we created a separate list, Right. Absolutely right. We created it under instead of the watch list. If you just go to lists, you can see our list of, um, oh, what is it? it? I called it the uh, the film board watch list. Pretty easy name. You and a team of monkeys came up with that. <laughs> it took a long time <laughs> to come up uh, with it in the writers' room. <laughs> and uh, and so now you can see it's not a very long list because these things change because uh, they you know they come about kind of every every month. It's, but yes, it's the list of one. <laughs> they are the that is the list of one uh, of films that uh, that are not in the regular uh, watch list. And so right. I think I, I don't know when do we uh, when do we usually get the 2015 list up? We usually do that right around kind of. November. Uh, right? Yeah, it's toward the end of the year. We yeah. have a few in there for 2015. The uh, we have the Mad Max series in there for 2015. Yep. Yep. We had to push that back because we're waiting for Fury Road to open. Yes, so that's in there. But they're they're coming. It's coming together. It's already coming together. We've got, speaking of the writers' room, mm-hmm. now we've got so many people who are helping us out. This is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, right. so much more time for us. <laughs> oh wait, it didn't work out that, <laughs> that way. Didn't, that <laughs> didn't turn out right at all. <laughs> okay hey let's uh is that all it's all the news we have i believe it is talking about ourselves too much let's do trailers uh 
Okay, I'm going to go first, and it's uh, because I'm giddy with excitement. I am giddy with excitement, too. (laughs) (laughs) Are you excited that I found this trailer even? You hadn't even heard of it? I had never even heard of this, and it it just the trailer blows my mind. Blows your mind. Wow, is right. This is a film uh, called The Congress by director Ari Fullman, written the novel. It was, was based on a Stanislaw Lem novel. Uh, Ari Fullman did the adaptation starring Robin Wright, Harvey Keitel, John Hamm, and um, Paul Giamatti, uh, and other uh, talented people. But mostly Robin Wright. And so here's the thing. Apparently in this universe, Robin Wright is an aging out-of-work actress, and she accepts one last job. In this job, (laughs) it's funny that it's actually Miramax that wants to scan her and program this scan of her with her complete identity so that the studio would own Robin Wright, so that the real woman could never do another film, but they, they would essentially buy out her career so that she could go retire someplace and they could make Robin Wright do whatever they wanted in whatever film context, whatever they wanted. And the whole, the the Congress itself ends up exploring all of the wonderful ways that they use her identity in film, whether it goes from, uh, from, you know, seeing her in, in real films to beautiful sequences of animation, animated Robin Wright in different uh, contexts and constructs. And uh, it looks wonderful yeah it, it really, really does. it looks gorgeous it's making me a little bit crazy so i'm looking at it it's apparently opens uh july 3rd in france it opened in july 3rd in france so it's already gotten some uh um uh, some play around the world i'm assuming it at um, uh, festivals yeah it looks like it's still in the festival circuit and it'll open in the u.s in a limited release at the end of august yeah I I am very much looking forward to this. It's got uh, you know IMDb. It shows it as a six point eight out of ten from. You know, ah, what do they know? What do they know? Right? It looks. Yeah, how gorgeous. many people have seen it? To, I to love Robin that, yeah. Wright. Have you? Did you see Ari Fullman's uh, previous film, Waltz with Bashir? No, I didn't. I was actually going to ask you. What did you think of that one? I didn't see it. That's one that I've really wanted to see, and I have just not have. Uh, it's just kind of slipped my mind, and that's one that uh, I feel like I definitely want to watch, and I, I kind of need to watch before yeah. I see uh, I see the Congress because I, I so there's something about the animation that uh, that Ari Fullman uses in his films to tell these stories that I think uh, is powerful, and the fact that he's doing the Congress with these animated sequences uh, makes me feel like I really need to see Waltz with Bashir first. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Yeah. Um, so it, it looks fantastic. I'm very excited about it. So late August, limited release. Be on the lookout for it. I am hoping it's one of those that just hits streaming as quickly as possible. Let's get it, yeah. get it out there. Absolutely. All right. Here, here. What's yours? Mine. You know, I, I'm I'm pretty excited about mine too, uh, only because it just looks completely silly and absurd, and uh, it has everything uh, that just makes me happy, which is this kind of silly horror comedy uh, story um, that starts out kind of like almost like a found footage type of film, but it's actually like a documentary crew following, as it turns out, a trio of vampires. Uh, This is What We Do in the Shadows, 
a a film that um, Jermaine Clement uh, is one of the directors, along with Taika Waititi, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> I love Jermaine Clement. <laughs> Jermaine Clement uh, is one of the funniest people alive. And, Truly. Uh, I really just, uh, you know, I, I enjoy him in everything that he does. And this, you know, he's directing, he's also starring in it uh, and as one of the three vampires. Vladislav. And, uh, Vladislav. And then you have, uh, what are the other ones? Viago and, and Deacon. Yeah. And <laughs> just, I mean, this is like not just vampires, like interview with a vampire sort of documentary and the horror of it all. This is like, they're arguing about who has to do the chores and how Viago <laughs> has been stuck on dishwashing and has not, uh, the little, you know, arrow has not moved for decades. And <laughs> you see one of them just slowly floating and vacuuming and the whole thing just looks so absurd and hilarious. And they, they're trying to go clubbing but they can't get into the club because they have to be invited to go into a building and they can't get the bouncer to invite them in. Just like all this silly stuff. Oh man. I just, this makes me laugh at just watching the trailer. I've seen it like three or four times now and I just laugh every time I see it because it's just, it's so nonsensical and it's just got that sense of humor straight out of, you know, everything else Jermaine Clements worked on, you know, and I, I think this is going to be a, uh, just one of those kind of, just absurd comedies that I'm going to just love from beginning to end. Oh, I totally agree. Totally, yeah. totally agree. Uh, when does it open? It's, it's still, it, it played at Sundance earlier this year and it's still in the festival circuit. It has a release date right now for New Zealand, but I don't see a U.S. release date. So hopefully they'll get it sorted out. Um, if, uh, yeah, I think that's it. So, uh, <sighs> Hopefully soon. everything comes to New Zealand first. I tell you, <laughs> ever since the Hobbit, that's right. Just... <laughs> Curse you, Peter Jackson. <laughs> oh, uh, it's too good. It's so too that's good. it. What we do in the shadows. Excellent. Yep. And now, Andy, it's time to <laughs> do it. Say it. You want to? It's uh, not what I was going to say. I want you to say it. It's time to go ahead. Well, uh, it's time to go blow out. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds that's, horrible. It really sounds horrible. It really it's, sounds horrible. That's why I wasn't going to say it. I then. know, but it was right. You already, it was already out there. You guilted me into it. Like, just. <laughs> I'll just play the stinking trailer. <laughs> It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. He's one of us all? Yes, he says he pulled the girl out of the car. I would like you to forget about her. Yeah, that's what I heard just before the tire blew out. You're right, it was a shot. He recorded a murder. They say it never happened. Brian De Palma's blowout. Now you hear it. Now you don't. Hey, let me tell you about. Uh, let me tell you about blowout. Tell me. 
this is uh, again uh, we are we are uh, we're stuck in 1981. <laughs> It's like a horror movie where our car broke down and we in 1981 and we just can't get out. I uh, so we are we're stuck in 1981. This uh, this was a um, it's a Brian De Palma film, written and directed by Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma Palma, uh, stars uh, John Travolta, Nancy Allen, uh, John Lithgow, Dennis Franz, and uh, you know and others, uh, but mostly those four people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I hadn't seen this in a long time. I didn't see it in the theater when it came out. I was a little too young for that. Um, but you know, I saw it probably some fifteen years later, and uh, I remember really liking it. But I couldn't remember why. Uh, and now I now I do. And now you remember why? I remember why. Um, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. How well, did that's it, good. How did it hold up for you? I've seen it more recently, but it had still been a while. Um, and it, I think it actually improved uh, even more from last time I saw it. Last time I saw it, I, 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 I remember coming out of it going, wow, I liked that, but man, what a downer. Now I, I came out going, wow, I loved it. It was a total downer, but th- that's one of the many things I loved about it. Uh, on this, I agree. Excellent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm sort of surprised. I uh, so uh, so the the whole uh, well, let's do. This is one of those. It's kind of hard to find, right? I mean, it's in Netflix, but it's not streaming anywhere. You can't like I, I couldn't find it. I, I don't even think it's on iTunes. I would think it was on Hulu because Criterion released it, a, a it's Blu-ray not. of it. It's really? not. At least I, I couldn't find, tried to bring it up on Hulu to find it. I'm going to do that right now. think I'm not connected. I'm going to do that right now. While you tell the <laughs> kind people uh, a little bit about the film. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, uh, one of uh, Brian De Palma's kind of conspiracy films. And it's a, a very interesting look at, uh, you know, kind of the nature of conspiracy. And we kind of jokingly put it in our Chappaquiddick list, and that's, partially because it has kind of this conspiracy thriller vibe from the 70s. And this the story is a movie uh, sound recordist and sound mixer. He's going out one night to record new sounds, and he records a car crash. And what he hears in what he records is it's not just the tire blown out that causes the accident, but he actually hears a gunshot. And um, and he tries to prove uh, and he has to save the girl who's in that the guy who is driving is dead, but he saves the girl. And then he's trying to prove that, you know, his theory is correct. And he kind of keeps getting shot down and, uh, you know, bad things keep happening. And the whole thing just kind of keeps building and leads to tragedy. And uh, this is uh, I can't remember. Brian De Palma had done quite a few films before this. Um, but I feel like this is, um, I, I don't know, I, I guess I don't know enough of his early, early films like Murder a la Mode, Greetings, The Wedding Party, Dionysus, Hi Mom, Get to Know Your Rabbit. I don't know anything about those films at all. But starting, <laughs> <laughs> So I'm, I'm hopeless with early De Palma. I don't think those are even out. Like, I don't think, I know Murder a la Mode is actually, they released his first film on the blowout Blu-ray. But all of those other ones, I don't think you can watch those anywhere. Get to Know Your Rabbit is a Tommy <laughs> Smothers movie. 
<laughs> it is. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's an early oh, copy. He actually had uh, uh, Robert De Niro in a number of those early films. But yeah, I, I don't know how you can get them. Um, but then starting with Sisters, Phantom of the Paradise, Obsession, Carrie the Fury, Home Movies, Dressed to Kill. Those were all, they all kind of fit into kind of a, a thing that he was doing with kind of these thrillers. And so he was kind of, it almost seemed like he was becoming a genre director. But then Blowout came out. And while it certainly has aspects to that, um, at times, it seems like it's spoofing those a little bit, um, uh, but it, it really, on the whole, it's really kind of looking at the conspiracy thrillers of the 70s, the conspiracies of the 70s, and creating a much more serious film. To me, it seems like this is really his first opportunity to really step out and make a film that is a lot more serious while still being a very effective thriller. Right. And then you look at what came after. And I mean, the 80s and early 90s were very good to, to Brian De Palma generally. Uh, you know, after Blowout, Scarface, Body Double, Untouchables, Casualties of War, uh, you know, Bonfire of the Vanities. And Raising. then everything goes to hell in a handbasket with Raising well, Cain. Yeah, but I'd say Carlito's Way yeah. is, you know, it's it's got its thing right. going for it. Right. Yeah, uh, there's that, that slump in the early 90s, Bonfire of the Vanities and Raising Cain, but... Yeah, all right. Uh, I think I like Bonfire of the Vanities more than you. That doesn't no. say a lot. Well, hey, Tom Hanks, man. I know. I'm just saying, I may have seen that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, you know, it's an it's an interesting film. I think, I, so if we go back to why I liked this film the first time I saw it that I couldn't remember, uh, it, that is now, I think, a, a, a works as a detriment to the film. And uh, that would be the abundance of breasts uh, <laughs> in the opening sequence. <laughs> it's like Brian De Palma, Brian De Palma himself and ended up started kicking this movie off with one of the, one of the like most interesting and I think strongest title sequences leading into one of the stupidest like opening B movie sequences, like gratuitously stupid B movie sequences um that i i think where he possibly could have come up with just he but, just lampooned himself and he, it was like he was going into making scream uh you know which obviously it had that kind of vibe to it now i know what you're going to say let me go ahead and, and channel you but <laughs> uh no you pete you're totally wrong because what happened is actually he was trying to show that uh, Jack Terry was, you know, he's the sound guy working for this really horrible studio, and they needed to set that up by, by showcasing the really horrible, uh, you know, breast-laden films that that they uh, they did. That was all part of the setup. Am I right? Well, uh, it was not quite in those words, <laughs> <laughs> or that voice. <laughs> yeah, that's you kind know, of Pete hey, as Andy as you, Kermit. You try stuff. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I found it a turnoff uh, <laughs> I, this I, time around. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, it's it's a little obnoxious, just like the, the locker room scene in Carrie is a little obnoxious. Although I think I would find the locker room scene in Carrie um, a, a little more of on the uh, side of the offensive rather than this, because this at least is doing it in a way that is meant to completely be spoofing all of those sorts of films, whether it's Halloween or Carrie or any of those early 
or late 70s, early 80s movies that are just those breast-laden horror slasher films. And I enjoy that he's spoofing it in a way where this is the guy who's stuck making these crappy movies. Yeah, I, you know, for me, it's... And, and leading up to that scream, which when you're watching the opening <laughs> of this and it builds to that climactic moment as the girl's about to get killed and then you yeah. hear the scream come out as if you're really watching this movie, it's, I found it hysterical. The, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> the, the argument that ensues about whether or not that was a, a dubbed scream was is pretty funny. I'm just saying it. You know, it opens as soon as they open that way, it becomes a certain kind of film. And I think you know, De Palma by doing that, he sets himself up by having to change to force a change of contexts uh, after that opening sequence, which is such valuable real estate. Uh, in the film, and um, you know, it, I, I think it does a, a lot. Um, you know, it showcases a the bad audio. I mean, it, you know, the fact that this is, you know, essentially with the exception of that scream, he's sort of showcasing, you know, Jack Terry's work, and you can already hear. I mean, the horrible breathing and the wind. I mean, it's just bad audio and and it sets up as a character tool it sets up the you know terry as somebody who really doesn't like his job all that much um it's kind of going through the motions and using so, old sound effects yeah like... again and again and again and and so i you know i do get that i'm just saying that when you open it like a porky's movie uh it it sets up a, a certain tone that i think he then has to reel in and he makes it a little bit harder for himself. I found it a, a bit of a jarring context to come back to what is otherwise a, a really taut thriller. I, I can totally see your point. I, I just felt it was a little more on the satirical side this time, and I didn't have any problem with it. All right, that's fair. So what else do you like about it? Anything? I, yeah, I, just everything about it. I mean, I... <laughs> I, I really found myself uh, mesmerized by it this time. I, I mean, I think the thing that really stood out this time were the performances. I mean, I think John Travolta had a presence on the screen that really uh, lent to the tragedy, uh, as did Nancy Allen, who at times can annoy the crap out of me. Um, but in this film, even though I find her character annoying, I found it very fitting in context of the film, and I actually um, enjoyed most her of her. The only time I, I, I was really kind of like, I'm not buying it anymore. And I, I don't know if I can blame her so much as the script was the end when she's with uh, John Lithgow posing as the uh, news reporter. And she's just willingly going along with him, la di doo da going all over Philadelphia and just chatting it up with him like nonstop, uh, like a chipmunk, you know? Up until that point, I thought she was great. <laughs> I um, so let me see what I wrote I, in my notes. I, I feel like I need to, to actually read what I wrote. Uh, Nancy Allen, an actress I quite like in other films, is horrible here. <laughs> uh, this, I I uh, give her the dubious honor of being Brian De Palma'd. Too, uh, whatever he had her do to affect her voice in such a horrible way is positively chronic. Uh, how in the hell did she land uh, these other movies, even RoboCop, after doing this film? <laughs> That's funny. You know, I I will admit that the voice is annoying, but that was a character choice, and I enjoyed this at uh, this time around. I enjoyed the character. I found 
something about that kind of whiny, high-pitched voice um, that it worked more just because of the nature of who she was. She was kind of this perpetual ditz who, you know, claimed to be working at the makeup counter, although it seems like what her job is 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 kind of blackmailing people with uh, along with uh, Manny Carp uh, right. to get money out of them. Um, although, actually, I don't even know if she's you know smart enough to realize that that's what Manny is doing. She seems a little more on the uh, inept side and needing Manny to kind of help her out with uh, figuring this stuff out and just making money. But there was something about her that I found more endearing this time, even with that high-pitched whiny voice it just it i don't know there's something uh, i don't know i guess i just i had warmed up to her a little bit but i can totally understand your point yeah i i found it and and this is the reason she stood out so much for me is uh, that i you know to your point i think um there are so many other elements and so many other character elements of the film that that really do work and i you know i think we'll you will talk more about travolta uh i, I think travolta works really well dennis franz man you know the guy was born and bred to play a scumbag. Uh, like he just fits perfectly. Lithgow um, is, you know, not playing that sort of manic craziness that that you know the sort of overacting thing. He is just even keel in this film, and uh, to me, he just nails it. And then there's and Nancy creepy Allen. As hell. Yes, yeah. he's totally. He's much more creepy uh, the more subdued he plays. Yes, uh, and I think um, you know, I think Nancy Allen just really stands out for me as a, just a bright, shining, garish light. Uh, in an otherwise really creepy uh, set. So I had trouble with her, but I, you know, and I really, I mean, generally I have a, a sort of love-hate relationship with De Palma. But, and, and so that's why I, I have no trouble saddling him uh, with this as a, you know, not catching this as a horrible character choice. Um, well, she, so. she was his wife at the time, although uh, according to what I there heard. There is no accounting for taste. According to what I heard, it was actually Travolta's idea to cast her. Um, she didn't think that she would fit the part, actually. She read the script. I guess at the time it was written for for an older pair of people. And um, he showed – and it was a smaller budget film. And he showed it to Travolta because they had worked together. All three of them actually had worked together back on Carrie. And uh, Travolta by now was a much bigger star. Right. And – and um, had just kind of called him up and asked what he was up to. And he's just like, oh, I've got this little film. And Travolta wanted to see the script, and he loved it, and he wanted to play Jack. And De Palma was thrilled, but uh, was like, well, I'm going to have to rework the script. And, and Travolta said, how about getting Nancy to play Sally? And um, I think both De Palma and uh, Nancy were surprised by that because – Neither of them seemed to think that she would fit the part. And so De Palma ended up reworking the script to fit them as a younger couple and to to kind of rework it around their two uh, personas a little more. And, you know, I, I think he did a good job. But, again, I can totally see where you're coming from I, as far as with her personality. I, I'm just saying it for me. It was just, you know, I, it didn't bother me as much this time. Yeah. And, you know, and like I said, I mean, this is not, uh, the, uh, you know, in terms of Nancy Allen, I generally – you know, I don't find her this quite this way, which is which is why it seems, you know, so yeah, so strange in this film. Uh, how about Travolta? You know, this is uh, according to Quentin Tarantino. This film is, which is one of his favorites, is why um, 
he wanted to cast Travolta in Pulp Fiction because there's something about him as an actor and uh, that you can see in this film. And I, I totally agree. I was just mesmerized by him in this. There's this weariness to him. There's this uh, drive that he has to to figure out this um, this mystery of this uh, of this gunshot that he hears. And, um, at, and as the story builds to this just tragic ending, uh, you know, I just feel so with him from the moment he is over Sally as she's uh, just been killed by, uh, by Burke to that haunting shot afterward, which really it just rattled me. Um, the, the next scene is him sitting in, uh, it's now months later because it's snowing outside. It's actually like at least six months later. Um, and he's sitting outside in the snow and he's still listening to that recording of her getting killed. And that just really rattled me. And, and watching that and then cutting to the very last scene when you see him using her death scream as the quote, perfect scream in the film. I mean, that just is, to me, this is one of the most tragic endings you could find. And it's just, uh, it's just a a bitter ending. And the way that he plays those last moments in this film, I mean, I don't think, I don't know if I've seen him play better. That, you know, for me, the reason his performance stands out in this film is because he plays it with no affectation. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he comes off of his biggest films uh, and, and leading up to this film, frankly, right, with Saturday Night Fever mm-hmm. and Grease and uh, two years uh, or I think maybe uh, actually more than that, three, four years uh, as uh, Vinnie Barbarino on Welcome Back, Cotter. I mean, this is how we knew him as an actor who is exceptional at playing affectation right. uh, and, and this just sort of caricature. And in Blowout, uh, you, you get a really a, a straight, um, kind of uh, subdued character piece. And I think by playing it that way, he really allows that drive, that sort of obsession uh, to shine through. And I, uh, I'm with you. I, I feel like it's, it is easily his, you know, one of his strongest and most compelling performances. And I think he's, you know, in this film, he's why you watch it. I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, like I said, it's an, it's a, a great thriller, uh, but it's um, a mystery uh, but but it's it hinges on his performance. I think he's just great for it. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. So, uh, Dennis Franz, you know. Yeah, he. I mean, he. I, De Palma loves using people that he's used in the past. Mm-hmm. Travolta and Nancy Allen uh, were in Carrie. John Lithgow has been in, he was in Obsession, uh, Raising Cain, which we don't want to talk about. Uh, Dennis Franz was in uh, Body Double. Uh, you know, he likes to use a lot of the same people, even his crew. He really kind of sticks with people that he knows mm-hmm. and trusts. Mm-hmm. And Dennis France is one of those people. And Dennis France, like you said earlier, he's a guy who's really born to play kind of a creep, even though he was a great cop for how many years on NYPD Blue. Right. Uh, boy, he does this kind of creepy role so well, and yeah. it's uh, <laughs> it just works so well in the context of this film. And it just, uh, God, he just, I, I felt like I needed a shower after watching his scenes because he's just so slimy. I, I think so too. I, you know, there the scene where uh, at, at one point in the film, uh, you know, we know 
that uh, he has this original film of the accident itself, and Sally needs to go steal it. Um, and so she goes over and, and confronts him, and uh, you know he starts making moves on her. In and uh, that I, I <laughs> weirdly, as little as he's in the film, really, mm-hmm. uh, I, I found that one of the most intense sequences. Yeah. He is this big, sweaty guy. Uh, and she is this diminutive little thing, and I think they they play that really horribly. And when he gets when she clocks him on the head with that bottle, uh, you know you want to stand up and cheer. Yeah, and then you just want to you know cross your fingers that he doesn't wake up while yeah. he's trying to get out. Right, right. Uh, so and and finally, of course, the great uh, John Lithgow. Yeah, and like we said, I mean, he's already <laughs> he's already been in these movies with uh, De Palma, but. There is something really creepy about him and just the the mentality that he has in this film about deciding that the way to kind of create this whole cover up that he's building with with these political people is to uh, create a fictional serial killer so that he can kill Nancy and no one will be any the wiser as to that's why she died. Right. That is the most just freaky thing yeah. that someone could come up with. And then, and, and then you watch him as he goes around doing this and you see him kill two other people prior to, prior to Sally. And it's, God, it's just, you know, <laughs> there's something yeah. really disturbing no, he's, about that. He's really, and he really sets himself up. I mean, to play it as straight as he did, he's played a lot of creepy characters in his life, but he really, you know, you, you, it, it's sort of fun um, to watch him go from, um, you know, from this to um, the world according to Garp was his next movie. The world according I was going to say, like to connect this to Dexter. Oh yeah, right, uh, right. You know, I mean, he's this his character for Arthur Mitchell and in Dexter when he he was in um, a season, and um, uh, it, you know, again, it's just that straight, horrible, horrible human being that he just crushes every time he plays it. Yeah. And then you look at something like, uh, um, I've just blanked on it, uh, but like, you know, 30 Rock. From the, the, yeah, thank you. 30, 30 rock, rock or 30, 30 Rock. rock. I, was gonna, I was gonna throw out Harry and the Hendersons, yeah. too. I mean, he he goes from being completely haunting and terrifying to somebody who's just like, in these absurdist you yeah. know, comedies, or dirty, and, rotten scoundrels on uh, on Broadway. Yeah, I mean, um, he really is all over the map as far as what he can do, and he sells it every time, even yeah. in animation with Shrek. And I mean, he's he really is uh, just a guy that uh, is very talented, and he's got that great big bushy beard yeah. right now. Yes, he does. Yeah, handsome man. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's uh, let's just talk. Um, wow, briefly about uh, can we about uh, Vilmos uh, uh, Vilmos? Can we do that? Sigmund, yes. Vilmos, yeah. Sigmund, Sigmund, yeah. Vilmos, yeah. Vilmos. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I, you know, I this is I I think he is really a, a perfect pairing for uh, Brian De Palma. I I found myself really uh, interested uh, and intrigued by some of the the cinematographic choices um, uh, that he made in this film. Mostly, it's pretty straight. Uh, there are a lot of mysterious angles, a lot of low angles looking up, especially in the when we're in uh, Jack Terry's 
uh, studio. You know, he's there are a lot of these wonderful angles where he's looking up through these hanging uh, reels of tape, and and uh, it, it gives us a, a wonderful sort of texture uh, to every frame. But then we get the sequence when Terry discovers that somebody has been in his studio and has magnetically erased every tape in there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the camera starts spinning. Uh, it, the, the camera's in the middle of the room, and it starts spinning on its central axis here, and we see, uh, uh, we see these just boxes of, of these old reels being tossed around the room as uh, Travolta is loading all of his assorted you know, playback machines uh, with these reels and testing them. And so now we hear the, the, sort of the, the sound, the texture of the sound is coming in as all these assorted buzzes and hums and sort of thumping uh, sounds uh, as he loads each each successive uh, reel to examine all these tapes that have been erased and discover it. Now, the camera is still spinning, and every now and again, Travolta will cross the frame. Uh, but it's almost sort of an accidental catch, right, as, mm-hmm. as the camera continues. It's like, wow, we're just lucky if we happen to see what Travolta's doing. All we see really are the results of what he's done, which is load another thing. And so the first time around, that tape machine wasn't, ro- wasn't rolling. That reel-to-reel wasn't loaded. And the next time around it is, and another box is flying across the screen. I found myself just, like, on the edge of my seat, absolutely enraptured by the visual uh, uh, composition of the sequence. I really loved it. And I think uh, it really stands out to me in the film in, that is otherwise pretty straight. Uh, well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's some of that in the, in the last sequence at the parade. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part it is, uh, it is pretty, pretty straight. And I think, you know, Brian De Palma is definitely a director who, who needs a director of photography who is up for uh, challenging, challenging themselves and doing things outside of the box like these great 360-degree spins or doing the split diopter where you've got that extra piece of glass on your lens that kind of creates two different focal planes, which he uses in this. He uses um, it all over the place. In yeah, this. It's, I love it in the, yeah. in the early when he's recording the sounds and you've got him recording on one side and the owl on the other or the frog or whatever it is and how he's doing that and then the split screen which you don't see i mean i don't know anybody who does split screen um as often as brian de palma in fact i don't think any other director i can't name another director who has used it in recent years other than tarantino and i don't think he's done it recently i think last time he did it maybe jackie brown i i I can't remember if he used it in in some of his recent ones well soderbergh um, does it Oh, so to, well, what has he what has he done it in Ocean, recently? Oceans and the Oceans films, okay, in all sure. the Oceans films. Yeah, so so I mean, there are directors who do play with it, but nobody does it like De Palma, and I think he does it very effectively, and he really puts things together that uh, that really kind of make you think about what you're watching. And again, sometimes it's more effective than others. I didn't find it very effective in his most recent endeavor, um, but. Getting uh, Vilmos to come on and do these sorts of shots um, where it's just like this this mad dance almost in the room as as, as you know, as as Jack is unwinding mentally, uh, you know, realizing that all his tapes are are 
erased. It's it's a really brilliant way to play that scene. And then also, uh, it it makes it very complex for the director of photography because he's he can't just. It's not lighting just one shot. He's lighting the entire 360 of what we're going to be seeing. It makes it more challenging to film because obviously any crew that has to be on set has to be moving behind the camera as it's spinning. Everyone else has to be gone, and um, and then you have to light everything. You can't have any shadows anywhere of the crew. It just makes it very complex, and I think Vilmos really knows how to do it well. And then you look at the rest of the film and just the production design of the red, white, and blue all through the film um, that's used in a really interesting way where it's, it doesn't really feel patriotic. I mean, you see it at the parade, which has its own patriotic feel, but it becomes this really kind of like this dirty nightlife red, white, and blue kind of almost these neon flashes that uh, it almost brings it more of a noir feel than anything patriotic. And the way that Vilmos played with the light um, throughout the film and the, just the tones of those colors, I mean, it's it's haunting. I mean, this I think you're right. This is a film where uh, he really had an opportunity to to stretch his legs, even if some of it feels a little more straightforward. I think from beginning to end, it's actually very much a an incredible opportunity for a, a DP to have had a chance to work on a film like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a lot of fun to watch and a lot of fun to watch uh, just the construction of it. And I think it goes back to one of the, um, uh, I think one of the real allures of the film uh, or celebrates um, kind of the, the, the foundations of the film, that this really is a love letter to the production of movies. Yeah. Right. And and so insofar as we get to talk about these wonderful tracking shots and the split diopter, what we're really doing is is, you know, what what he's doing on screen while we get to celebrate all the techniques that they're using to capture the frame. What he's doing is building film in a way that made me absolutely regret that you and I uh, came up in um, in school in an era that was right at the end of this sort of filmmaking. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it it just takes me back to dark rooms and, you know, these God, those giant uh, cutting machines and the, just the the smells and the, the getting those film cuts. And I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's a very visceral kind of connection that you have with film. And I think he 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 uh, you know, they play with that really well in this movie. I, I think, um, uh, you know, it is a it's a film about sound and i think they you know we we should talk a little bit about you know that uh just oh, yeah. the nature of sound uh, it, it's not only what you know uh, the the sort of linchpin of the story um but it, it again is is so much of the texture of um you know the narrative itself yeah it really is and it's it's done uh, just the sound design is done very masterfully paired with the cinematography. You've got the beautiful uh, Pino Donaggio music, which is just, you know, haunting and tragic all at the same time. And even holds when up. It, yeah. Actually, oh man, does quite it hold well. up. And, and even when it has the romantic, uh, you know, Sally and Jack theme, it still ha- lends a note of tragedy to it. But pairing that with just all of the, the creepy sounds like when he's out recording and it's a beautiful uh, stereo mix. So when he's out recording, you've got this great separation between left and right. And it's, uh, it, you, well, you didn't, but you, you didn't watch the Atmos version of it. 
<laughs> surprised, you didn't, surprised you didn't get that one. Well, yeah. Oh, did you? Did you get that one? Yeah, in my home Atmos. Oh, there you studio. go. Studio. Wow. <laughs> Glad what? you had a chance what? to get that installed. Shut up, shut up, Andy. <laughs> you were saying? Uh, no, I'm just saying the sound design. Um, I mean, it really was just masterful. I think they they found a way to play with the sounds. I mean, obviously, they're playing with the notion of sound effects in the, that opening scene that we were talking about earlier. But throughout the rest of the film, I think it's just got a very solid layer, of very naturalistic sound effects and sounds that work very solidly for creating this world. Um, but some of the sound effects themselves, like even if they don't sound completely natural, there's something about them that sounds a little more haunting, like the way the frog croaks in the beginning, it kind of disturbs me because it doesn't sound like what I think a frog should sound like, but it makes it that much more creepy. And then you hear that mystery sound of that. It sounds like a fishing line getting cast that bzz, snap, yeah, bzz, snap. And it just pulls back to some trees as he records it. And you don't know what he's filming. And just the way that he uses sounds, just like he uses the visuals to create the mystery that you don't know what's going on. And, and it just is more little riddles that he's throwing in uh, throughout. And it's even it's like to the end when, when Sally is up on the top of the building and she finally has a chance to get away and reaches over and screams with the, uh, the uh, American flag behind her. And you've got that great, tragic death scream as you're looking at the American flag and you just pull back and you see everybody at the parade enjoying the parade, not even hearing the scream, even though we and Jack can clearly hear it. Um, but everybody is just part of the parade and living the, 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 the high life that night, you've got the Liberty bell ringing and everything. So, you know, people just miss it. But the way that all that sound comes together, I, I think it's a masterful sound mix. Well, I do too. And and two points on that. The first is that, you know, we can't uh, kind of escape this without talking about the intensity that is built up just in that sequence. The fact that she is wired and that he can hear the conversation between uh, Lithgow and Sally um, as he's taking her up to kill her, but he can't see her, but Terry can't see her, the two of right. them. Right. Uh, he can only hear uh, the struggle and until the very last moment uh, when he finally sees her up on the lid. That is an extremely intense sequence, and I, I think that just is expertly uh, done. The second on this, just the overall uh, theme of sound, this is a film that really makes good on its early promises of setting us up with a, a character who is an expert in sound recording of showing him at his, you know, at his work out, you know, filming, uh, of, of, uh, sort of, you know, showing him as a little peeping Tom, kind of an audio peeping Tom, you know, pointing his shotgun mic at a couple that is clearly doesn't want to be seen. Uh, so th there are a lot of these wonderful themes of sound, uh, and then the film actually makes good on it by, by leveraging sound in a way that, that, um, that, uh, makes the drama that much more palpable. So yeah, especially there, there, because, there are films that don't, you know, that, that set you up right. with that promise and then they, they fail on actually delivery. I think this one does it quite well. Yeah. It's horribly painful when it's the sound guy who, uh, who has no way to save her, but he has to hear it. Yes. And there's this, this wicked irony to that, that yeah. I think De Palma really latched onto that and just uh, gave it his all and really just hit it out of the park. He really did. Uh, you know, you already mentioned the, the closing sequence. I think it's, it is, uh, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, apparently, 
uh, one of the reasons the film did not do very well at the box office that that it ends it, it's quite a downer that he ends right. up using her actual death screen scream that he recorded as she was being stabbed or, or as she was being strangled um, and used it in this ridiculous breast laden B movie mm-hmm. uh, over the woman being stabbed in the shower. Is just haunting, and and as a result, uh, word of mouth uh, caused the film to suffer. Yeah, yeah, it definitely. Uh, it, it, I mean, critically, it was praised pretty highly, but it just uh, it just kind of sputtered at the box office. And they all, uh, they've said, you know, if it was a happy ending, it would have done a lot better. But this is not the ending that they wanted to do. In fact, uh, De Palma was kind of riding high at this particular moment because his previous several films had done really well. And um, his producer, uh, conveniently, while he was making this, ended up becoming the head of the studio. And because of that fact, he was almost given just kind of uh, free reign. He had, he had just so much flexibility to do what he wanted to do with this film. And, and that was his decision, is, is, is this ending. And the producer was just like, well, I don't think it's going to do well, but we'll release it. We'll release it this way and see. So... Uh, the, you know, the producer was right. It, it hurt the film. It didn't do as well. But I think in turn, it, it's made it into a film that is remembered more than uh, it would have been if it was a happy ending. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, hey, it, it got a Criterion play. Yeah, there you go. It, it, it is an important film in many ways. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's quite strong. I, yeah. You know, I think the other thing, just as a, as a, a side note for me, the B story was, was really quite well fused with the the plan there's this whole there's this whole sort of secondary story of of um uh kind of exploring uh travolta's guilt about how he was hired to work for the police and you know do this mm-hmm. sound gig and and uh didn't play out very well and so that was a motivating factor for him to actually solve this crime yeah, as, right. an, as an individual, and that was, I for me that really worked. You know, his, that background really worked for me, and I think it's uh, it, at at first it it seemed a little bit superfluous, but I you know by the end of the film, particularly seeing how it doesn't work out for him here either, right? Uh, it, it made it um, uh, that much more resonant. Yeah, really so. does. You know, it's funny because uh, we just we also posted going back to the camera work, but um, you know we recently posted on the Facebook page that little uh, Vimeo that somebody had put together about Spielberg and his long oneers or just the like long shots that it's like one scene but in a very long shot, and how some directors like uh, you know Scorsese may really make a point emphasizing their wonders that they're doing but spielberg kind of puts them in so many of his films and you don't even notice that they're there because he does it in such a subtle way this is a film where you know i think there's also some great longer shots that uh, that help tell the story that work really well and i i mean i didn't time any of them i don't know if they're you know of great length but i feel that it's just a sign that de palma is a director who's not just uh, doing the same old thing, you know, he really hates having to make films the way that they tell you to, where it's, you know, you've got to get uh, the, the wide shot for coverage. You've got to get the, the singles, the two shots. He hates that, uh, that method of filmmaking because it feels so, so, um, you know, 
staid and, and it's just, it's, it's bland. And he really tries to create things differently. And as a director, he's always trying to change things up. And I really appreciate that uh, with him. Even if he makes some misses, I think for the most part, I find him always an intriguing filmmaker. He doesn't condescend. No. Right? He doesn't give you, he doesn't spoon feed anything to you, particularly in this film, I'll, I'll speak specifically about this film. Um, you know, there there's nothing in this film that doesn't make you work a little bit uh, to to sort of keep up. And and in that respect, it actually takes me back to uh, you know, Clute or uh, the Parallax View. You know, the the um, uh, Paranoia uh, trilogy we did. That that there is this this sense of you know, you're jumping into the story in motion, and you just have to hold on. Yeah. Um, it's going to involve politics. It's going to involve um, guilt and suspense, and and um, it's going to involve kind of the darker side of of these people, both our hero and our uh, and the criminals around him. Um, and uh, it, in that respect, it really is, you know this is is another one of those films that I think uh, demonstrates the bridge from the seventies to the eighties. Uh, it, it offers that sort of grit, the darkness, the sad ending, um, and and yet it offers you know Nancy Allen and and John Travolta, um, yeah. you know, and, and sort of bridging us into the eighties. Yeah, and, and you know another bridge which we haven't mentioned yet, but it's just the fact that it, you know uh, it's it has a similar story to uh, Antonioni's Blow Up. Yeah, where a photographer you know. becomes obsessed and, and keeps blowing up a photo to try to find out the truth, um, and also to Coppola's The Conversation. And, I, I mean, I don't think he's directly stealing either of their stories or just aping them, but I do feel like um, there are hints of those films throughout this that give a good sense of... Uh, a filmmaker who knows the history of the films that have come before him and has found some interesting elements of these other stories that he wants to imbue into his own story. And, uh, you know, just like we were saying with these other 70s films that he kind of has tapped into in this whole vibe of that 70s conspiracy thriller, I think he's also tapping into those two films in particular. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I actually haven't seen both of them. I uh, I haven't seen uh, Blow Up. Yeah, um, I haven't either. But um, reading about it as I was sort of gearing up for this conversation, it's uh, it's on my list. Yes. Um, all right. What else you got? You ready to talk in money? I got two more things. Okay. Um, this this is a film that uh, has some great steady cam work as well in the camera field. Um, I, I really enjoy the steady cam work at the beginning in the horror film. Um, as well as the rest of the great Steadicam work throughout. The funny story about the Steadicam work in the opening is the the inventor of the Steadicam, actually, uh, what is his name? It is uh, Garrett Brown. He um, had just come off of The Shining, working with Stanley Kubrick, and had really kind of created just a very beautiful, fluid use of Steadicam. He had to come off of that film and come onto this film where De Palma said, okay, now I need you to do this great POV Steadicam work, which I guess up to this point hadn't been done quite so much as the POV style. This was really kind of setting the tone of the Steadicam POV. Mm-hmm. But De Palma said, but it has to look crappy because this is crappy, uh, crappy filmmaking. And so he really had to kind of forget everything great about 
quality Steadicam work, that he, especially that he had been practicing with Kubrick, and really stepped down to make crappy Steadicam work in this film. And <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> I invented this stuff, right? <laughs> you know that. <laughs> so I, it's, it's just kind of funny that you know this is yeah the inventor and the guy who you know did great amazing steadicam work in with uh, Kubrick in The Shining now had to step down and make really obvious <laughs> and uh, just crappy steadicam work for the beginning of this film. So that's that funny note. And then the last thing I wanted to say: this is one of those um, just horrible stories that. I don't even know if I've heard this happen on any other film. Maybe Waterworld, except I don't think it was this particular situation. But they were in Philadelphia. They were nearing the end of production. No, actually, they were in the audio mix. They were um, done shooting the film, and they were doing the audio mix. And they must have been unloading stuff out of a vehicle. They came down, and somebody had stolen two or no, ten reels of negative, two boxes, ten reels of negatives out of this truck. And they actually had to go back. They had to claim, do an insurance claim and get money from the insurance company. And they actually had to go back and shoot 10 whole reels of the film all over again. And it wasn't just simple stuff. It was the The parade parade. at the end of the film. They had to go back and reshoot all of that, um, which I just think is just, uh, it's just like one of those horrible things, especially it's like, you know, you got it. You think you got some amazing stuff from your actors and everything. And then to have something like this happen and it's just, it's horrible. And you know, they, they never figured out what happened to it. These people probably had no idea what they were stealing and probably were rather disappointed when they realized it was just, you know, boxes of negatives. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, um, but you know, De Palma said that the film community really rallied behind him. You know, it was just one of those tragic things to happen and they, everybody came together and they weren't able to get Vilmos to come back. He was, he was not, um, he was not available. He's already on another project. So, uh, Laszlo Kovacs, who was one of his friends who had, uh, immigrated to the U S together, Laszlo came on to, to reshoot the ending of the, of the film with uh, De Palma and his team. But that's horrible. You the, you bring up the the water world. That was the one where the the reels ended up in the drink, right? Yeah, I they think that was the story. The they fell off the boat, right? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> oh, one of the many reasons why that film went over budget. Uh, uh, that was horrible. <laughs> All right. So we you have already mentioned the uh, uh, the money a little bit. How much? Say again. How much this uh, this film made? Um. It didn't make a lot. It cost about nine million to make and about another nine million uh, to promote. So all told, about eighteen million. Um, add that all up uh, in adjusted dollars. That's about forty-six million dollars when you look at today's money. Um, as far as what it made domestically, it made, uh, I believe, it was twelve million dollars. Um, so it definitely didn't make. Uh, enough to really uh, get its money back. And it ended up being a money loser, which is, which is really a shame. I mean, like I said, it was a critical success. It's just, it never, it never found its audience. And uh, until later, I think it found, you know, cineasts kind of latched onto it. But, you know, at the time of its release, I just don't think people uh, were willing to jump on board with it. Really too bad. Yeah. Really too bad. Well, I think I think it's time to rate it. 
I think we should. Head on over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and there you will find our stack rankings of all of our favorite films that we have, uh, that we have uh, talked about on this very show. And uh, we shall see right now if Blowout will crack the vaunted top 100. Let's see. First up, Blowout or The Bourne Ultimatum. Hmm. That's a tricky one. I actually think I like Blowout better. I think I may watch The Born Ultimatum more, but Blowout, I think just there's more meat to it. So I think I'd actually give the leg up to Blowout on this one. Born Ultimatum. Was that the one I liked? That's the third one. That's the third one where uh, where he comes home. That's right. Huh. Yeah, you know, uh, I'll give it to Blowout. All right. Blowout or the Outlaw Josie Wales? Outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, that's a tricky one. Oh, I mean, uh, wow, that's hard. I think I'm going to give it to the Outlaw Josie Wales. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, why I ought to. (laughs) I'm going to give it to Josie Wales, too. All right. Blowout or Splash? Blowout. I will do blowout. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> blowout. Oh, this is uh, this man. We haven't talked about this in forever. The Night of the Hunter. Oh, blowout. That's a tricky one because I really love Night of the Hunter. Hmm. I, I'm. I know, but I'm conflicted. But I'll go. I'll go blowout. I'll give Night it. of the Hunter is more dated than blowout. Yeah, but man, I would it, put it on but, first. All right, Blowout or Blood Simple? Oh, that one is actually a tough one for me. I uh, would do Blowout. Really? I think I would, yeah. Hmm. All right. All right, I'll, I'll give it to you, but Blood Simple. I, I know. Do, I do like that Blood Simple. I do, too. I do, too. Oh, well, here you go. Blood, blowout or Fargo? Fargo. Uh, gosh, I don't know. I thought I, you were handing me that one. I, I, I thought know, you were thought handing it to me. And then I thought about it. I, I will go Fargo. I will go Fargo. But that that's really hard for me. Blowout or The Killing? Speaking of Stanley Kubrick. Oh, dear. Um, I'm going to do Blowout. You are? Mm. <laughs> I say that as soon as that came out of my mouth, I was like, <laughs> like, but then really, I, I really talk this, about it. Yeah. The same when I say the killing, this is really a tough one. For this me. is, this is a tough one. I, I, uh, I had to think back to, um, to the killing a little bit. That was, uh, wow. 1956. Sterling yeah. Uh, Sterling Hayden, the fantastic uh, bank in the airplane and all the money. Yeah. And the wind. Yeah, no, I, I am going to go with The Killing. I, I think I will, too, now that I said the <laughs> blowout. <laughs> but look at that. 37 out of hey, three. That feels like justice. That feels pretty good. All right. Well done. Yeah. Uh, okay, where, uh, pray tell, do we go from here? Well, we're going to be uh, heading on over to our friend uh, Michael Mann to watch Thief. When's the last time you saw Thief? You know, 
I don't know. At least 10 years, I'd say. Maybe 15. And I don't remember much about it. I don't feel like I liked it that much. <laughs> That's what I'm but, really, really worried about. But I'm really curious to go back and revisit it now. I know, me too. You know, uh, I just have to say, Tuesday well. Yeah. Mm. I'm curious. I'm curious to see what I think of it after all this time. I know. James Caan. I do like James Caan. I do like the James Caan. I just watched Rollerball, and uh, you know, there's there's something about there's him. There's something about him. <laughs> That's always compelling. Yeah, it is. Okay, I'm excited to watch this one. Haven't seen it forever. Yeah, uh, be, but we're going to catch that so, one uh, next week. This is our second to the last one, right? I think. Of the 1981? Uh, nope. No, we have three the, more. And American Werewolf in London. Atlantic City. And Atlantic City. Yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten Werewolf. How could I forget Werewolf? All right, so next week, Thief, James Caan, Michael Mann. Oh, and Gallipoli. I forgot Gallipoli's in Holy there. Holy cow, we've got four more of these. Yeah, we're only halfway through. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's a marathon, not a sprint, my friend. That's right. All right. Hey, uh, good talk. I'm out of here. Yes. Uh, I right. got to go to bed. I have to go record some new sound effects. Coyotes Ribbit. howling and Ribbit. such. Haboobs blowing. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.